This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace recently launched the latest version of their platform, Squarespace 7, which is a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, 15 new templates, and an incredible feature called Cover Pages. You can try the new Squarespace with a free trial at squarespace.com and enter offer code NATE at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, start here, go anywhere. Hey, it's Reading Loud. Nate Cordry here. Thank you for listening. Thanks for finding us on the internet. Uh, I'm the host of the show. Last week we had an amazing book club. Ah, oh, man. Julian Smolinski, Paul Shear, Tim Simons. We talked about Dennis Johnson's The Laughing Monsters. It was a great discussion on a thoroughly uh, confusing and um, uh, disappointing <laughs> reading experience. But to have uh, three people in here who are smart and opinionated uh, sharing their opinions on the book, it was great fun. So I've assembled uh, a new group of readers for the next book club, which is coming up at the end of February. It is Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections. I'm assuming you may have read it. Uh, it's, it's a 21st century American classic, if that is a real category in books. He got a lot of press for a lot of bad reasons with the whole Oprah Book Club thing, but his book is amazing and Freedom is amazing too. His new one, I guess, is coming out in, the, in this, this fall, I think. There are rumors um, coming out, but go get the corrections because uh, it's a wonderful book. I'm so excited to reread it. It's a little bit longer. It's about 500 pages, so there's, it's a little more effort, but you get a big return on the investment of your time. It's about it's and it's something we can all relate to. It's about family. About it's about how it's hard and sad to be in a family sometimes, which is something we can all have discussions about. I'm sure because um, families are difficult. Everyone's family is difficult. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I have to say, my throat. <clears throat> I'm drinking water. It's a little. Uh, it's a little rough today. It's fine, but I have I have a bit of a cold because I was at the Super Bowl. I went to the Super Bowl this weekend, and I was going to take my iPhone and record, um, ask people questions about like their favorite sports books. But then I was like, um, "You're at the Super Bowl, so just go to the Super Bowl, man." So I apologize. I didn't do the legwork and and find some good tape on random. Super Bowl fans and their reading habits. Uh, but I did, um, I'm a Patri Patriots fan, um, full disclosure, so I'm, I'm a big homer. But I did, I was lucky enough to, um, I got pretty good seats by the Patriots end zone. So I was there. I wasn't too far away from when um, Julian Edelman caught that touchdown pass in the uh, in the end zone for the Patriots to go ahead. And I want, I want to share that video now if you, if you listen really closely you can hear me you can hear me say come on tommy in a in a boston accent i think and then um i think i say fuck yeah at the end but ju it just gets chaotic i was a lot of, a lot of a lot of hugging of strangers anyway here we go So if you're watching the video right now, it's just shaking <laughs> everywhere. I just hugged a stranger. 
And uh, the two Seattle Seahawks fans behind me, um, they left. Uh, they shouldn't have left. They spent a lot of money on their tickets, and they should have stayed. So if they're listening, you're fools. You should have stayed for the rest of the game. Um, <clears throat> so I have a bit of a, uh, a cold, but um, I'm going to rally. Uh, before we get to our stuff, some news, some really interesting book news. Uh, Harper Lee, she has a new book, her second book. Isn't that amazing? She's 88, and she's never published another book besides To Kill a Mockingbird. Isn't that just it's so bizarre. She rarely speaks to the press. She's a very kind of quiet, private woman. And then on Tuesday of this week, um, there's news that came out that her second book, which is called Go Set a Watchman, is going to be published in July by Harper. It's amazing. Harper Collins, um, not Harper Lee, though she is going to publish it, I guess, because she wrote it. Uh, and it's about Scout. 20 years after, she's moved to New York City and she's living her life. And then she comes back and she reminisces with Atticus about what happened when she was a child. So it was a book that was written first, actually. It was her first novel. And then it got shelved. And I think her publisher was like, no, no, let's, 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 see, what, let's see what it's like to, to experience this world when Scout is young. And this book has just sat on the shelves for years. It's not like Harper Lee wrote this book last year where I'm sure her writing style would have changed and she's lived all of these years. So much has changed and her writing would have changed. It's like this has been sitting in a, in a, in a time capsule and taken out. So the style is going to be the same. It's going to be interesting to read because the style I'm assuming will be so dated, but that's also what's really charming about it. It's just been sitting sort of untouched in her who knows where it was. There's a bunch of different conflicting reports on where it was and how it came about that, and her sister and attorneys and all this other stuff. But isn't how cool is that? So we're definitely going to read that book in August of this year for the uh, book club. So once it comes out, go to your local bookseller and pick it up. Um, so that's the news. Uh, go get the corrections. Harper Lee has another book coming out, and I went to the Super Bowl. Uh, and I my first piece... And this week is, uh, as usual, I like to have a comedy piece. It's read by my friend Rick Holmes, who I did a play with this summer. Uh, he's a wonderful actor, and uh, they say you, if you're lucky, you take one person from each uh, job that you do, if you're lucky. And uh, Rick is, I've taken a few people from this job, actually, which, which is great, but... Rick is just a wonderful, wonderful actor. He's a big Broadway guy. He was in The Pillow Man and Peter and the Starcatcher and Spamalot and Cabaret and all this other stuff. He's about to be in The Visit, which is going to premiere in a couple months. Um, I'm not sure which theater, but he's about to be on Broadway again for like the 13th time. He's a wonderfully talented guy. So he came down to the UCB and read this piece that Blake Stuck wrote. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at, at Blake Stuck. It's a piece on the McSweeney's uh, Internet Tendency page. And it's a great piece. Uh, I'm not sure the year was written, but it is so funny, and it really made me laugh out loud. And Rick came down and read it, and now you can listen to Rick reading it. Here's Rick. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, I've gathered you here because you're the best of the best. Uh, I, I brought you into this room, you know, the leaders in fields from science to math, from anatomy experts to, to calculus masters. 
Among you here tonight are the best our great nation has to offer. And uh, fields of study ranging from, uh, ranging from anatomy, neuroscience, you know, biophysics, anthropology. Hell, we, we even have uh, an architect here just to cover all the bases. So that's great. Uh, what could bring such a meeting of the minds to fruition? Why have I gathered you all here? Well, um, it's very simple, really. I want to replace my hands with hammers. <laughs> I can tell by the gasps and muffled murmurs that not everyone is quite on board just yet. So please, just allow me to go into a bit more detail. Uh, in theory, I would remove one hand entirely, replacing it with a hammer. Uh, perhaps just your, uh, your everyday meat and potatoes claw hammer. Or you know, maybe something a little more offbeat, like um, a rubber mallet. <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I, I'm neither a surgeon nor a carpenter, so I'll... I'll, I'll leave that decision up to you. Uh, let's just cross that bridge when we get to it, okay? Not get bogged down in the minutia of replacing my hands with hammers just yet. Uh, so, I, I've got this hammer for one hand, on one arm, and, and uh, on the other, well, this is, <laughs> this is where it gets a little offbeat and out there, so please just keep an open mind. Uh, on the other, I would, I would replace only my fingers with hammers. <laughs> Little miniature hammers of approximately the same size as my now non-existent fingers. <laughs> I don't know if we can make these little hammers already, or you know, if uh, we're gonna have to design them. But uh, I'll, I'll leave that up to you guys. Fabricate them. But again, that, that's something we can discuss at the appropriate time. But by now, I, I'm sure I've piqued your interest, and you can see why I've gathered you all here. This is gonna take some serious planning and plotting, not to mention more than a little mental fortitude to get it done. You know, now that I think about it. I, I probably put my hammer fingers on my right hand. I feel like I could still grip a fair amount of stuff like that. I, I could probably even grip another hammer. <laughs> Can you imagine that? A man with a tiny little hammer finger, a normal size hammer, like it wasn't anything at all. Man, just. Think of the things a man could accomplish with that kind of hammer power. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm lost in thought. Uh, there are literally limitless things a person could do after having his hand surgically replaced with hammers. We're on truly groundbreaking stuff here, folks. I'm, I'm sure you all have apprehensions about my adapting to life wherein I no longer have hands, but rather hammers in their place. Don't get me wrong. It's going to be hard as hell to get accustomed to it at first. I have almost 55 years of muscle memory already ingrained in these, these primitive human hands of mine. And that's going to take some serious training to overcome. But that should show you all how dedicated I am to this endeavor. I'm willing to go through months, heck, maybe even years of agony and excruciating pain if need be to achieve my goal. Our 
gold. <laughs> which, again, is replacing my hands with hammers. <laughs> uh, my other hand would, of course, be used for just you know, smashing shit all to hell. <laughs> okay, maybe that's a, a oversimplification, but it'll have to do for our purposes here. Uh, please don't think I'm I'm going to be drunk with power and use my hammer hand for evil. No, no, quite the contrary. I'll use it for the greater good, stopping potential bank robbers, hanging uh, little samplers for little old ladies. Mostly, though, for party tricks. If Gallagher's success has taught us anything, it's that people love nothing more than seeing stuff smashed into oblivion. And isn't that exactly what we need right now? Especially in this economy? <laughs> I'm really doing a public service when you get right down to it. I'm no hero. <laughs> folks. I'm just an everyday citizen, trying to give back to his country by having his hands unceremoniously cut off and replaced with hammers. <laughs> Listen, I, I just want to put smiles on people's faces, okay? And if they happen to want to pay me for it, then hey, that's their prerogative. I'm certainly not going to shake them down or extort money from people in exchange for protection. That's what you're thinking. I, if elected president, <laughs> promise never, ever to use my hammer in anger against my adoring public. Oh, sorry, I almost forgot. Uh, I'm going to use this highly dangerous and experimental surgery to springboard myself into the position of President of the United States. <laughs> it's, it's the only next logical step. I mean, when the public hears that their most beloved stand-up comedian also moonlights as the crime fighter The Hammer <laughs> at night, I mean, it'll be impossible not to be voted into office. <clears throat> uh, admittedly, uh, this the name could use a little work, but that, that's why you're all here. Well, that and to fuse hammers onto my arms and hands. <laughs> well, to really hammer my point home, uh, anyone, and I mean anyone, who refuses to help or stands in the way will be dealt with with a swift and orderly fashion. <laughs> Gonna hit you with a hammer. <laughs> that wasn't clear. <laughs> Thank you. Rick Holmes! Rick Holmes live at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater back in November of 2014, uh, reading Blake Stuck's piece, I'm going to replace my hands with hammers, so help me God. <laughs> really funny. Again, follow Blake Stuck on Twitter if you want to uh, see more jokes. And uh, let's go to a quick break, and we'll come back with our interview you're listening to Reading Aloud. Thanks for listening. Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. They had some really weird news recently. They partnered with the, the dude, Jeff Bridges, for that Squarespace Super Bowl ad. And it's not a joke. This is real. And I'm not surprised. Uh, Bridges created DreamingWithJeff.com with friends old and new using Squarespace. It's an album of relaxing sounds, guided meditations, and stories. This actually sounds kind of great. And you can visit uh, dreamingwithjeff.com and listen for free or pay what you want to download. And on top of all that, all the proceeds go to the charity group No Kid Hungry, which is great. And if that inspires you, go to squarespace.com now and start building your own free website. Free trial, no credit card required. 
and it's easy to use and customize, and there's all kinds of new great templates. You can use it for a portfolio, a personal site, uh, even a store. Uh, every website comes with a store. And if you ever need any help, there's support 24-7. No matter what kind of issue you're having, just reach out and touch someone, and they'll reach back to you. So go to squarespace.com, build a website, and enter offer code NATE at checkout to get 10% off and show your support for their website and our show. So Squarespace, start here, go anywhere. My guest today is a professional. His name is Jake Fulness, and he's a comedian. He's a writer, director, DJ, podcaster, and knows more about music than you do. I promise. Most recently, he was a DJ on two indie music stations on Sirius. He writes really good jokes and uh, breaks new bands all the time. I, I brought him on the show today to help teach me how to make my podcast better. <laughs> His podcast, The Fogelness Files, is an enormous success, and he gives good interviews. So, fake jogelness, welcome to Reading Aloud. Hello. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for, for coming. I, uh, it's, it feels nice to be back in this studio. I haven't uh, – I've had to put my uh, podcast on hiatus due to extreme show business success. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I haven't been back – I haven't been back at the Earwolf studio – since I did my last uh, podcast episode. When, when, when was that? Maybe like, when was that? Like six, six, seven months ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, and uh, I, I hope to like bring it back at some point in the spring is what I'm, I'm hoping. Okay. Yeah. But, Do you miss it? Yeah, very much. I just miss having conversations with people. And yeah. th that's like the best thing about this, especially like calling up somebody that I don't know that well or somebody whose career I admire and just getting to, you know, ask them, take them through their entire career and yeah. like ask really specific questions about it. Like I miss that a lot. You've done, you did not, so far 93 episodes. I know. I feel like I-, I That's if, fucking insane. I, I'm not getting to 93. You, you'll be, I'm you'll be surprised. Th 13 though. and then I'm going <laughs> to take my own life. <laughs> you'll be surprised. Like it, it really did- fly by and and 93 is such a weird number like i felt like i i should have gotten it to 100 like if i had just done <laughs> seven more yeah. but yeah no shit like i feel like and and i just sort of stopped doing it there was no explanation it was just, i feel like i right. abandoned it right. but that's just how good things are in show business yeah, Nate. Man. like things i had to i had right to bail now. i had to bail i hear you brother. I, which i feel really guilty about and, and uh so i so I, yeah I, I don't think I've, i haven't done podcasts since well you're above it not not above it just like Jake, first of all you're above it a little bit yeah <laughs> what's going on first of all the best show is back so who needs any of you I, listen i have a question about it because i like music <laughs> uh -huh. and i like jokes. Mm -hmm. So why don't I listen to best show? I don't know. What's wrong with you? I don't know. You're, Tell me what it is. What, what are you, what are you too settled into the, uh, the, no. the culture out here? No. The Hollywood lifestyle? I don't know what best show is. Okay. I will explain the, I, I am a huge, uh, fan and, uh, supporter of the best show. If you don't know what the best show is, you're, you're in luck because in March, the numero group, which is an amazing reissue label, uh, they put out all of Syl Johnson's, uh, uh, stuff. Uh, they are putting out a box set which uh, is oh, – which is – it's like 100 bucks and it comes with I think 16 CDs and it is the best of the best show. 
So if you've never heard it before, this is Tom Sharpling's uh, uh, radio program that he does with John Worcester from Super Chunk. And, right. and uh, it, it is just a career-spanning box set, and it comes with a book. It's got a uh, – I did an interview with uh, Sharpling and Worcester for the for the book. Uh, and it's like – it's a real book too. It's not like you know some flimsy thing. Yeah. Julie Klausner wrote an essay. Uh, Patton Oswalt wrote an essay. Uh, Damien oh. from Fucked Up. It's this really nice Whoa. box set. And uh, that's coming out in, in March. And that's like – the great entry level. It's a, it's a, there are two broadcasters that I uh, really look up to, uh, Howard Stern and Tom Sharpling. And uh, if you're a music fan and you like uh, music ephemera and and like specific yeah. jokes about music, you could you, you're not going to find anything funnier right. than the best show. It was on FMU. Yeah, it was on WFMU for 13 years, and just a couple of wow. uh, weeks ago, he he's launched it on his own uh, website, thebestshow.net, which I, I can't recommend enough. Was it on weekly? It was on every sun- yeah every Sunday every, or Tuesday Saturday? nights. Tuesday, oh, Tuesday nights. Night. Yeah, every okay. Tuesday. Uh, Did he do? Was it sketch or was it? Or was here's it, what the show is for people that have never heard it um and and tom gets on the radio and he takes he takes phone calls and he talks about things and he's sort of like uh a friend of mine described it he's like your cantankerous older brother uh who's just right about everything (laughs) and uh you know just you know comments on what's going on he takes calls and he just and he just riffs and then at some point uh john worster will call in uh, as one of many characters that he has created over the years right. uh, and is a complete monster human being, just right. an overconfident, pompous jerk. Uh, and and, it, and Tom completely loses control of this radio show that he is so in control of the entire time. And then there's also some puppets involved. It's this constant evolving thing. There, there's no real way. The, the way you can j- get into the show, just start listening. Yeah, like, there's exactly. no like, like, oh, you need to hear this, this, and this before you get it. Because yeah. I think a lot of people, the, the barrier to entry is very hard because there's 13 years of it, and it's it's sort yeah. and it's similar to SCTV. Like SCTV had you know Melonville or you know whatever. Like it's it's world. The, it's, the best show has Newbridge, uh, which is a fictional town in New Jersey. Jersey, right. yeah. Which right. Uh, just start listening to it. It's, okay. Yeah, and um, it's just so much better than all the other uh, podcasts. You know, it's just right. so much better. Right, right. It's much, much better than the garbage that people listen <laughs> right, to. Right, right. I'd like to thank the podcast community for embracing me so that I could get very successful and then leave you behind in the dust. Bye. <laughs> and that's our show. Thanks so much for listening to. Uh, how did you um how did you convince your parents at fourteen that you should write direct and star in a public <laughs> access TV show from your fucking bedroom. Here is a story with that. Um, I grew up, uh, my my parents not together the entire time right. uh, I, I was alive on this planet. My father lived in New York. My mother lived in Philadelphia. Uh, and so I would come to New York every weekend to visit my dad and it was great. Um, my mom had a job in New York when I, uh, when I was about 13 years old and she was commuting from Philadelphia to New York every day. And that's insane. That's an insane way to that's live. That's fucking nuts. Yeah. So at a certain point, mom was like, we are moving to New York. Yeah. And I was really against it. I thought my life was going to be over. I had a community in, of friends uh, in, in Philadelphia. And while I enjoyed visiting New York on the weekends, like I was, you know, 13. That's, that's a tough time to move. It's a move. tough time to move. Um, but we did. And as part of the deal, like I, I was finishing uh, eighth grade, I was going into uh, ninth grade. And as part of the deal, I said, fine, I'll move. But you got to let me do a public access show. That was your chip? That was it. 
That is fucking amazing. To which my my parents said, yeah, sure, whatever. What are you talking about? That's what you're negotiating? Yeah, fine. You want to do a pop? Yeah, fine. Whatever. (laughs) What do we care? Like, you know, like, and I don't think they knew what that meant. Yeah, yeah, right. Necessarily. Right. <clears throat> and you have to, because you know, and I've I've talked about this many times. Like anybody can get a public access show. You fill out a couple pieces of paperwork, and they'll let any lunatic with right. uh, with ideas right. on the air because the government says they have to. Like right. I'm sure they would love to get rid of public access, but like it's provided a home for myself and Chris Gethard to yeah. do whatever the hell we wanted and to you do. You two are fucking kooks. So <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Well, it's just sense. like the last people you should give a, a TV show, although now we all have TV shows for real, and it's nice. Um, yeah, right. But uh, but yeah, so I uh, I started doing the show, and and uh, they had to you know sign a permission slip uh, as my legal guardians, and they just did. And um, they, didn't, they didn't have any idea what it was going to turn into. It was just like... Some weird kid's video hobby. How how long were you on just by yourself before MTV came calling? How how many episodes did you do? Is this like it was really strange? Um, I I did the show for uh, I think about a year, a year and a half before the MTV show uh, came together. But the attention to the show came very quickly. Um, I used as the theme song to the show uh, the They Might Be Giant song Minimum Wage from, yeah. from the album Flood. And four weeks into doing the, the public access show, four episodes in, uh, I put a voicemail on the number on the bottom of the screen the entire show so people could leave me voicemail messages uh, and communicate. There was this before email and before yeah, yeah. the internet. That was you'd, – you'd get voicemails. And four weeks into doing the show, John Flansburg from They Might Be Giants – called up and was watching the show with his uh, girlfriend at the time, Robin, who's now married too. And um, and things like that started to happen uh, where I would be – there. I would be like, I really need a haircut. And then I would get a, a voicemail. <laughs> like I'd just be on the show like, yeah, I know. My hair looks stupid. I need a haircut. And then it's like, hey, this is Thurston Moore. Kim Gordon will give you a haircut if you want. Cut the f- – how? How the how? fuck was Thurston Moore watching your show? Here's my theory uh, of why this happened. Yeah. Um, the show – this was 1994. So this is 20 years ago and this was in an era where you would still channel surf. So you would literally – to find right. out what was on a channel, you would have to tune into it. There was no electronic program guide. There was that one channel that just had the scroll of the electronic program guide. Yep. But it wasn't like a built-in thing. You'd have to either go to that channel. Yeah. So – the public access channel that I was on was channel 16. MTV was uh, channel 20. So what I think would happen is that people would be watching 120 minutes or channel surfing right. Sunday nights at 1230 a.m., wow. flick through the dials, stop on like, oh, there's a Devo music video on uh, on TV. And then the Devo music video would end and there would be me like, hey, how's it going? I'm an idiot. And – People were like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's how I think people started tuning in is because of the the, the clips that I was sharing right. and, uh, you know, and I think they, they got in because they were channel surfing and then stayed, stayed tuned. It was we, also really a weird shot. Like it was just like me head on a teenage boy <laughs> and a phone number. Like, the fuck what, is like this? what is this? Yeah, yeah. This is scary. I think channel surfing in Manhattan wow. at a very particular time for pop culture in the 90s. Did you ever get to meet Robin Bird at some – I did. I, I've come across Robin Bird a couple of times. People don't, don't know Robin Bird is uh, – she 
it was a porn star in the 70s. Uh, just made a couple of movies, but she's in like Debbie Does Dallas. And, and, and uh, well, so Robin Bird hosted a, uh, a public access television show. It's still on. Uh, they just rerun old no episodes. Shit. Wow. Yeah, the Robin Bird show. And what it was was strippers from local strip clubs yep. would come on and do a strip tease yep. to, you know, dance music. Bang your box. Bang your box was was Robin Bird's song. <laughs> um, and she would just introduce strippers and then they would take phone calls with the strippers. And that right. was the show. And it it is sort of like Sherry O'Terry did Robin Bird on Saturday Night Live. Like this was well, like yeah. this really sort of, you know, iconic yeah. New York thing. New York thing, thing. yeah. Totally. So yeah, I, I remember going into, because I had to drop off a VHS tape every week at public access for, and, and I remember going in there one time and seeing Robin Bird in the uh, elevator and, uh, <laughs> and, it was, and she was lovely. Yeah. The last time I saw Robin Bird was uh, I went to the premiere of uh, the Kevin Smith movie Red State. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this was, this was not that long ago. Yeah. And uh, there's a Q&A. After and it's like Kevin and some producers and stuff and this guy gets up uh, and starts to talk to one of the producers on stage and he's just like, I just want to know, when are you going to do the Robin Bird story? Because she's here right now. And then Robin Bird just sort of like begrudgingly gets up, like just clearly a guy who had seized upon this moment in a QA and a to pitch his project. And it was – and I don't – like think about the room of people. There's a bunch of Kevin Smith fans. They don't have any idea who this person is. This guy's like, you know, as soon as he's out of there, he's back to Fire Island. Like – and like, you know, and just like befuddled Kevin Smith in like a, you know, a hockey and, – and, and I feel like I was the only person in the entire room who was like, yes, this is the greatest – and it's like my my favorite thing in, in the world where somebody's like doing show business very badly yes. and completely not aware of it. It was like the perfect storm. Oh, so it's the specificity of public access. Right. Somebody doing show business badly <laughs> I, at a Kevin Smith movie premiere. I'm I'm in heaven. Yeah, I don't know what that's missing. I don't think anything. That is absolutely perfect. Yep. How did uh, difficult people come about? How did that? What was the sort of inception of that? Julie wrote a script. She wrote a really funny script. Julie Klausner. Julie Klausner. Yeah, and she's like, "Hey, I wrote this, and it was great." And you know, it, she'd been working on it, working on this, getting this thing together for a long time. And uh, I started kind of helping in the development process of it. And now we're uh, getting – we're finishing up writing uh, eight episodes and it will be on – we'll start shooting in, in like January. It will be on Hulu later this year. That's unbelievable. It's like, oh, yeah, we're just making a TV show. Have you been collaborating her with her for, for a long time? How did you yeah. how did you meet? Do you guys – Julie meet? and I met through, you know, oh my oh, – 15, 16 years ago at the uh, Upright Citizens okay, yeah. Theater. Right. Which is where I met you. That's where I first met you as well. Yeah. yeah. Like um, – Julie's just one of those people that was just like, oh, you you get it. And just sen- sensibility-wise, like she really comes from from the same place. Like I feel inc- yeah. incredibly lucky. Same thing with Billy Eichner. I just in- incredibly lucky to work with friends and, and people that like uh, – you, you just get it. There's just a shorthand of like yeah. you just get it. And, yeah. And uh, yeah, ju- and, and it was that way at UCB when, when we were doing stuff. I was thinking the other day like I, I saw my mom over Christmas and I was just like – 
Yeah, mom, you, you you designed the flyer for Julie's one woman show. Oh my see, god! Like that's how long that we what, all what know year each was, other. What year was this? Like two thousand two or something? Before two thousand two, I think it was before nine eleven. Oh, okay. Which uh, is going to be the worst of the Richard Linkletter movies after before Sunset and before yeah before nine eleven is not going to be good. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know why. I don't know, man. I think it could be cool. It could be good. <laughs> it, it depends how why they – Why did my how they cast that? that? <laughs> it depends how they cast it. Um, who's going to pl- – no, forget it. Forget it. Forget it. Who's going to play – No, Nick don't. <laughs> no. No. Uh, <laughs> no, but um, I know – yeah, we know each other a really long time and, and – and, um, I don't know. It's really cool. It's gonna. I, did I you hope direct her? Like it. Did you direct her show? Or were I you didn't in it? direct her show. I, you, you, I, remember I did direct a bunch. Uh, directed everybody else's shows. Tons of fucking shows at that place. I directed a lot of sketch comedy at uh, at the Upright Citizens Brigade yeah. Theater. Yeah, I saw a bunch of your shows. This is yeah. like 2000, 2001, 2002. Yeah, to two thousand, like nineteen ninety nine to like two thousand four. I feel like I, I was really. Busy at UCB. Yeah, yeah. Um, every time I went there, I, I was I, I saw you there. I directed like every show, but yeah. it was it was great. I mean, it was co- that was college for me. Right, that was college. It was uh, learning huh. how to do sketch comedy. Yeah, uh, and and comedy in general. Yeah, and I was very. I mean, that was just another circumstance of just like being very very. And Amy Poehler's uh, the executive producer of uh, Difficult People, and she's, she's oh wow great. yeah yeah she's been great. And and it's just like I like I I met I I UCB started just at the right time for for me like I was like yeah. eighteen yeah and and it was the beginning of what UCB is you know turned into now which is you know two theaters on two different coasts and and. Uh, you know, I just re- the way I always explain it is like I remember the UCB when they moved from Chicago to New York. It's probably like 1996, mm-hmm. and they came to Luna Lounge, and it was it was almost as if they had said, "Hi, we're the Upright Citizens Brigade. We're gonna get our own TV show. We're gonna open up a theater. We're gonna start. We're gonna take classes. over. We're gonna take over." And and New York City just said, "Yeah, good. All yeah. right. Yeah, we thank need you. this. We need, we this. need you. And where we the did. fuck have you been? We did." We did. Be- and that's where I was able to meet, oh my God, there's all these like-minded people that are my own age. Yeah. That, that share sensibilities. And yeah, Julie was definitely one of those people. Right. When I first moved to New York, I moved in 2000, in September of 2000. And I had, <clears throat> and none of my friends from high school or college moved to New York. They all lived in New England. And I knew like five or six actor buddies from this theater that I spent summers at. And that was it. I knew no one. And, but my brother, fucking God bless him, like just grabbed me by the collar and was like, I'm going to show you this world. I remember, yeah. If it wasn't for him, I don't like, and so many of my friends now are friends that I met in 2000 at McManus and at the UCB. I went to the UCB four nights a week. Yeah. Because I had nothing to do. I had no money. I had very few friends. None of us did, yeah. And I needed a community. A community, yeah. And And it's still doing that today on a much grander scale. But I like, am so thankful for those those like few years were like they it was like yeah it was my community yeah i i it's it's been amazing to see how that community has uh just grown up you know and and that everyone is still really friends and rooting for each other it just never it never got weird you know it's just yeah. like it, it and uh yeah I, I, it was a really nice time it was a really nice time yeah uh an important time i like now better because um 
uh, be, well, it's just the, the money and the success and all of that. It's, it's much better. It's hey, much can better. I borrow $1,000? Yes. yes, you can. Thank you. I would do that. Um, how did you first start writing jokes for SNL? Didn't you write jokes for like Weekend oh, God. Update? Yeah, I did. How did, um, you, how did you get that? Um, through Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon had um, – I met Jimmy uh, right after he got hired for SNL. Jimmy and Horatio, I feel like I met the same night. And, I'm, and it was maybe through some sort of Beastie Boys uh, connection. Uh, and uh, yeah, Jimmy you know, and Horatio were really great to me. I uh, – you know, but SNL has always had – Weekend Update has always had – what used to be called faxers, which would be just people that they invite to mm. fax in jokes. Yeah. They use your joke. They pay a hundred bucks. Right. And um, Jimmy had just started doing Weekend Update with Tina Fey. And uh, he said, hey, will you, will you send in some jokes? And it was over email at that point. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I did. And I was, I, it, was, it was really, uh, it was really wow. fun. It was, it, you know, but uh, I was never a, a, like a staff writer at Saturday right. Live. I just would send in, I was just a contributor to Weekend Update. And I got some jokes on. And, um, and it, was, it was good. It was really uh, like, I was very young. It was a very nice thing that he asked. He's been very kind to me. Over the years, what did it? Because I'm, I'm sure when you were growing up, you were an enormous SNL fan. And yeah, you sort of followed the sort of the culture of SNL. Like, what did that feel like the first time that you were like, I had a fucking joke on SNL tonight? Um, it felt amazing. I, I, uh, yeah, I vividly remember it. Uh, and. Did you watch it live and you were – Well, that's how you would find out if your joke got on or not. Oh, my you God. Watch what a high. So I, so I started – so you would watch – I would watch Weekend Update and, you know, it was – it wasn't right away that I got jokes on. Like I, – I, and it was like, oh, uh, OK, I didn't get anything on. And I heard that like sometimes I would come close in, in dress rehearsal or whatever. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, I remember watching it and uh, – it was a mean joke about Paris Hilton and Tina Fey did the joke. And I just said, oh, my God, I just had a joke on Saturday Night Live. And, yeah, it was unbelievable. Um, I want to talk about um, music a little bit before sure. we get to books because I want to talk yeah, about yeah. music books. Um, are these bands important? I have a list of bands. Okay, I want yeah. you to say if they're important. Oh, good. This is I just get to be judgmental? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Kiss. Yes. Big Star. Yes. Wings. Yes. Van Morrison. Yes. KD Lang. No. How come? I don't know. <laughs> Fair I, enough. I, Counting Crows. No. Why not? Because that guy's not that great. Skrillex. No. no. Why not? Because it's, I mean, I guess it's main, it's because it's, not, it's nothing new. Nothing fascinating. Isn't it, isn't it important that they he sold out Madison Square Garden on is New Year's Eve? Is it important? I don't know. For what? I think it's bad for culture. The new pornographers. Yes. Real estate. Yes. Craft work. Yes. Why? Oh, because you know how Skrillex sold out Madison Square Garden? Because fucking Kraftwerk set it up for him. What about the soundtrack to Working Girl? Oh, yeah. Very important. Let the river run. Yeah. Bo boys like girls. I don't know boys like girls. So no. <laughs> Boy George. Yes. George Harrison. Yes. Emmy Lou Harris. Yes. Lou Reed. Yes. Real Big Fish. No. Categorically, no. <laughs> Why isn't real big fish important? What was it? Just that fucking upbeat ska punk shit. Let's just take the worst. Let's take the worst of ska 
turn it up to a couple notches. It's like the, it's like the worst elements of ska and, the, and just the worst fashion of the 90s. And then, and then if we, and then, oh, because you know what else we need? You know what ska needs is an Orange County vibe to it. No, real big fish are not important. Screaming trees. I mean, I like, I got like that nearly lost. You yeah, song. that's fucking a great, great song. song. Yeah. cool video too. Yeah, uh, the Stooges. Yes, Animal Collective. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't fucking I don't get care. it, man. I don't care. I don't get it. It's just, noise to me. I just don't care. It's just I just don't care. Blind Willie Johnson. Was like an old blues guy. Massive Attack. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's fun. It's not for me. I'm glad it exists. Is it important? Is it important? I feel like there's other things of that era that maybe are more important. Yeah, it's, like I, I guess it's important if you're running like uh, like the standard hotel da- in downtown Los Angeles. Yeah, it's important to have something playing in the lobby, <laughs> throwing a massive attack record. Sure, it depends. If you're Ian Schrager, it's very important to create a vibe in the Mercer. Tears for Fears. Tears for Fears are very important. I met Tears for Fears this year. Uh, they came in for a meeting at Funny or Die. Why not? No shit. No shit, yeah. And um, just, you know, because celebrities will come in at Funny or Die, and one of, them, one of them was like, Tears for Fears are coming in. I'm like, I'll take that meeting. <laughs> um, they were great. <laughs> they have so many hit songs. Yeah, they like, did. Like, if you just think about the, the hits that they provided. Yeah. Yes, I think they're important. I think they were an, they were an intelligent sound of the 80s. Steve Miller Band. Oh, here I thought about Steve Miller Band just the other day. The the guitar wolf whistle in in the uh, the Joker when when the guitar goes <laughs> that might be the most disgusting thing that's ever been recorded. That it's is, disgusting. That's a lie. How, and you how, take it back. How dare you? You fucking take it back. I think Steve Miller Band is important because it represents a uh, just a, when you think of like just a a, a, a bong water smell of the seventies. <laughs> Like if you just think about like oh, why what's what's your older brother? Why does the carpet stink? He spilled the bong while listening to his Steve, Steve or, Miller or, record. Or an uncle that raped you. Yeah, just just it's just, just a certain there's a certain casual misogyny <laughs> and and quaalude abuse that I think of when I think of the Steve Miller band. <laughs> he he was touring like in the 90s and that summer show like at the outdoor venue uh-huh. was the fucking craziest shit. Like that parking lot was more dangerous than any other fucking for that reason. Yeah. Just a bunch of creepers yeah. in fucking jean shorts looking to tickle underage girls. Ugh, you know what I mean? Yeah, not my shit. Uh Ariel Pink I, oh, I'm glad you brought this up. I, I could care less about this guy. Who? What the fuck? What's I the deal? I could care less about it. The is deal he a, is, is he a fucking asshole? I don't know. I never met him. I'm sure he's fine. I'm, he's just like, it's just like, you know, I was on this radio channel for a while. I was responsible yeah. for breaking a lot of bands. I listen to yeah. it all the time. You listen more than I did. I could, I could fucking have heard three seconds of an Ariel Pink song in my fucking life. I decided <laughs> it's not for me. I just don't care. I, uh, I have such, such little respect for... Uh, music journalism and music bloggers and pitchfork uh, and all yeah. of that. I just uh, the, the Ariel Pink. It's like uh, uh, no, 
I'm putting on a big star record like a goddamn Fuck adult. Yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Why don't you buy into that, into Pitchfork and the whole music blog community? Because I don't good think any you. of it's good. Right. I don't think any of it's particularly good. I, I'm Every once in a while I hear something I'm like, that's fucking great. King Tough, I, I think are fucking great band. Yeah. I directed a King Tough music video. It's out in a couple weeks. Oh, shit. And I was like, I fucking like this. Because that yeah. guy's doing it. Like, yeah. you know, or Ty Siegel, that's a guy doing it. New Pornographers, there's some people who do it. Love like, North there's North. some bands that do it. And then there's a bunch of like, like, I don't know. I, I'm a bit of an elitist snob. Yeah, I and, get it. And I, it's <clears throat> like, I just remember like people love, uh, like I, Frank Ocean. I remember talking about Frank Ocean. I listen to Frank Ocean. Yeah. I put on a Frank Ocean record. I'm like, okay, fine. Why don't I just put on uh, Stevie Wonder? Like I am that asshole. Yeah, and I'm totally. very comfortable being that asshole. Absolutely. And I, I've also earned the right because I've had impeccable taste since I was a child. His name is Jake Fogel. Yes. No, I get to do. I actually get to do it. I am. I am a bit like Aaron Sorkin in that way, and then I have my blinders on. Yeah. And uh, you're and, behaving like him. With you have your Red Bull in your yeah. hand, and you're he very demonstrative. He eats a lot of fast food, from what I hear. I've I've heard a lot of Sorkin stories recently. That makes sense. Um. Anyway. Um, so Ariel Pink, I mean, it's fine, but I don't, it's not particularly interesting. It's not me. for me. It's either. not for me. I don't really get it. Yeah. Do you, is there anyone who writes about music that you like? What about the guy from the New Yorker, Sasha Fear Jones? Do you, uh, uh, Sasha Fear Jones. I, I, I think he went like went to school with one of the Beastie Boys and stuff. Yeah. There's, there's music journalists that I like, uh, uh, Charles Aaron is terrific. Who, uh, <clears throat> wrote and was editor at Spin for, for years. Mm. Uh, there's, yeah, there's a, a, a t there are people. Yeah. But uh, the community Julian is. Shepard, who else is good? Um, there, there's, yeah, Maura Johnson. Like there's, uh, there's really good music writers out there. Jenny yeah. Elskew, I think is, uh, is a terrific person I was on the, worked with on the radio. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's like somebody's like listening to this right now and going to be mad I didn't say their name. No. Like, no. uh. Yeah, you know, yeah, no. There's good. There's good music writers out there. Darren, his name uh, is Darren, and he's pissed. <laughs> it's like I'm trying to think who who it would be. Rob Sheffield. There, there's there's people. There you go, Rob. Yeah. Well, since this is a podcast about books and and writing, so we'll finish off with some book recommendations. Yeah. I, I wanted to pick your brain about books about mm -hmm. music or like music biographies that you yeah. have read or have heard about or have just have sort of. Um, I've read a Excite, bunch. Excited you. Which ones pop well, into your brain? Well, everybody has read uh, – well, not everybody, but many many people know about uh, Please Kill Me, which is the you know oral history of punk that Legs, McKe Legs McNeil and uh, Jillian McCain wrote uh, you know, about London and New York City. What's left out of that book is um, all the Los Angeles punk stuff, like the Germs and the Screamers and the Weirdos X. and X. And, yeah. yeah. Um, but that's covered in another book which is also an oral history, which is called We Got the Neutron Bomb, uh, The Untold Story of L.A. Punk. And that is Mark Spitz wrote that. That's going to be one of the guys – but he's not really a music journalist anymore. Mark Spitz wrote that book with uh, Brendan Mullen who used to run The Mask, uh, oh, wow. the legendary punk venue in L.A. That is the companion piece – to please kill me. So that's got X and the Go-Go's and, and the germs and, and all cool. that stuff. There's also a really great uh, book by the germs called Lexicon Devil uh, – uh, about the germs called Lexicon Devil, uh, which Brandon Mullen also wrote with Don Bowles, who's the drummer in the germs. So if you want your L.A. Yeah. punk stuff, th those books. Um, I love Brian Wilson's autobiography that he wrote, Wouldn't It Be Nice, which was written – 
at a very interesting time in Brian Wilson's life because he was still sort of enmeshed with the uh, therapist, Dr. Eugene Landy. Oh, boy, yeah. And so uh, it's not clear how much of that was written by Brian and how much of it was written by Dr. Eugene Landy. Right. And I think it's a lot of it has been changed or redacted. But if you can find an old copy of that – that's the like first edition of that. Yeah, that's a great read. Yeah. Um, uh, Ronnie Spector's book, uh, Be My Baby, uh, sh as far as I'm concerned, that should have just been all the evidence one needed at the Phil Spector trial. Just, you know, just give the, you know, exhibit A. Um, and then uh, I Want My MTV, which is another oral history book, which is about the launch of MTV. Uh, is amazing because it has all the stories about all the different bands at the time and the making of their music videos as well as how they started that network. Um, and and what else was uh, – What about like uh, like Hammer of the Gods? Hammer of the Gods. Shit. You have to read that. And that's I remember reading that like stealing my brother's worn paperback copy and reading yeah. it and thinking like, oh, yeah. holy shit. You, know, you got a mud shark incident yeah. in that? <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. Sure. <laughs> There's so there's so many. Uh, I also like Bob Mould's book uh, because I which he which he wrote with Michael Azarad because uh, that was just I was just like first of all he's just great he's just a a, a really uh, great man and just very very honest really honest revealing autobiography yeah um, you know I love uh, there's another book too which is not just about music but does cover. Music and has just a great essay about Debbie Harry and what Debbie Harry's importance is in our culture. And it's called uh, My 1980s by Wayne Kestenbaum. And it's a collection of just really short, really short stories uh, about – it's sort of a template for how great it is to be a fan of something. Oh, um, cool. And so he's he's – there's an essay on Susan Sontag and and there's a great essay on, on Debbie Harry. And uh, that's one of my favorite things that I've read. Oh, in, cool. in a long time and read this year uh, and was just talking about it to somebody today, uh, how how special that book is. Damn. Um, and, you know, th yeah, there's there's so many. There's so many great books. I love books. Jake Fogelness loves books. Yeah. And I love Jake Fogelness. Thanks for coming in, man. Thanks, man. This is a blast. Yeah. Cool. Cool jacket. Thank you. It's from American Apparel. <laughs> We've arrived at Act 3 of Reading Aloud. Thank you for listening. That was a great interview. I've known Jake for a long time. And I'm fascinated by his career because he's he's had his finger in so many different pies. He's a huge music guy. His DJ work on uh, Sirius XMU. Uh, I always listened to him when I was in the car. Um, and he has this amazing comedy background. I met him in 2000 at the UCB. Uh, and he was directing a bunch of shows there and doing lots of comedy and he was the guy you'd go to to ask for music recommendations. Um, and he's also a writer and, and a comedian. So he's done all these different things. And I'm just fascinated by people who, are, who have had the ability to have success in different mediums. And that's really hard. And he's a really funny guy. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter. You should, because he's really funny. Uh, act three. Uh, to continue the music theme, I found this beautiful letter on Letters of Note, which is a wonderful website. They sell books, too, which you can get at your local bookstore. It's a collection of letters written by people um, like celebrities and, and people of note. <laughs> uh, and this is one written by Helen Keller on, I think it was in, let me see here, 1924. She wrote this letter to the New York Symphony Orchestra, and it is 
so beautiful. And it's not, not only is it a beautiful letter, which you can admire because it's someone who's being really expressive with their feelings, it's someone who can't see or hear. And it's amazing that the, the, uh, her, her vocabulary and the way that she strings words together in a sentence is just, it's mind-blowing. Like, Helen Keller is one of those people from, um, from American history that you kind of forget. And this letter was like a reminder of, my God, just what an unbelievable human. Uh, she listened, quote-unquote listened, to this symphony one night, and she was moved by it, and so she wrote a letter um, to the New York Symphony expressing her feelings about it. And Letters of Note put it up on their website, and it's really beautiful. And I asked my friend Aya to come in, Aya Cash, who's a really great actor. You're watching her now on that FX show, You're the Worst. Uh, she's the star of that show. I think she's in production for her second season now because the first first season was such a success. So when the second season premieres, I'm going to have her come into the show and we're going to do a proper interview because she's had an amazing career. She's a fantastic actor, and she's been kicking ass for a long time in New York and here out in Los Angeles. And we worked together. We weren't really friends. We just sort of met casually at the Williamstown Theater Festival where I worked this summer with Rick, who read the first piece of this episode. Uh, I think she was in Three Sisters or The Cherry Orchard. Uh, Three Sisters. I think she played Masha in Three Sisters or something. But she's a wonderful actress, and she has a really wonderful voice. She actually does books on tape sometimes as well. So um, she's great. And doing this show has reminded me that I have really talented friends who are really generous. So uh, thank you, Aya, for coming in and doing this. This is Aya Cash reading a letter written by Helen Keller. 93 Seminole Ave, Forest Hills, L.I., February 2nd, 1924. The New York Symphony Orchestra, New York City. Dear friends, I have the joy of being able to tell you that, though deaf and blind, I spent a glorious hour last night listening over the radio to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. I do not mean to say that I heard the music in the sense that other people heard it, and I do not know whether I can make you understand how it was possible for me to derive pleasure from the symphony. It was a great surprise to myself. I had been reading in my magazine for the blind of the happiness that the radio was bringing to the sightless everywhere. I was delighted to know that the blind had gained a new source of enjoyment, but I did not dream that I could have any part of their joy. Last night, when the family was listening to your wonderful rendering of the immortal symphony, Someone suggested that I put my hand on the receiver and see if I could get any of the vibrations. He unscrewed the cap, and I lightly touched the sensitive diaphragm. What was my amazement to discover that I could feel not only the vibrations, but also the impassioned rhythm, the throb and the urge of the music, the intertwined and intermingling vibrations from different instruments enchanted me. I could actually distinguish the cornets, the roll of the drums, deep-toned violas, and violins singing in exquisite unison. How the lovely speech of the violins flowed and plowed over the deepest tones of the other instruments. When the human voice leaped up, trilling from the surge of harmony, 
I recognized them instantly as voices. I felt the chorus grow more exultant, more ecstatic, upcurving, swift, and flame-like, until my heart almost stood still. The women's voices seemed an embodiment of all the angelic voices rushing in a harmonious flood of beautiful and inspiring sound. The great chorus throbbed against my fingers with poignant pause and flow. Then all the instruments and voices together burst forth an ocean of heavenly vibration and died away like winds when the atom is spent ending in a delicate shower of sweet tones. Of course, this was not hearing. But I do know that the tones and harmonies conveyed to me moods of great beauty and majesty. I also sensed, or thought I did, the tender sounds of nature that sing into my hand, swaying reeds and winds and the murmur of streams. I have never been so enraptured before by a multitude of tone vibrations. As I listened with darkness and melody, shadow and sound filling all the room, I could not help remembering that the great composer who poured forth such a flood of sweetness into the world was deaf like myself. I marveled at the power of his quenchless spirit, by which out of his pain he wrought such joy for others. And there I sat, feeling with my hand the magnificent symphony which broke like a sea upon the silent shores of his soul and mine. Let me thank you warmly for all the delight which your beautiful music has brought into my household and me. I want to also thank Station WEF for the joy they are broadcasting into the world. With kindest regards and best wishes, I am sincerely yours, Helen Keller. Isn't she amazing? Aya Cash. Uh, Aya Cash reading Helen Keller's letter from 1924 to the New York Symphony Orchestra. You can find that on Letters of Note and buy their books. Their books are beautifully made and beautifully um, designed and curated. It's a great website. Uh, And this is the end of this episode of Reading Aloud. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you uh, putting us in your ear holes. And uh, we're going to be back next week. Again, I say this almost every week, uh, Possessed by Paul James is the artist who allowed us to use his song Hurricane for our theme. Go get his stuff on iTunes. He's so fantastic. Uh, And get The Corrections, Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections. Read it and feel real sad about family. Type in your thoughts, uh, reading aloud podcast at gmail.com, and be a part of the next book club in a couple weeks. Um, until then, I'll, uh, I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane! Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.